Hello, listeners. I'm Jamia. I'm Jamila, and we are Live Voices. Here from Librarians of Color, what speaks to the fullness of their careers, including successes and challenges. How do they do it? Join us to find out more about their Live Voices. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 4. Today we have an interview with Petrina Jackson. Petrina Jackson began as the Leah Gellin Purview Executive Director of the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America and Librarian for the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, November 2021. She was the Director of the Special Collections Research Center at Syracuse University Libraries, where she oversaw the Belfer Audio Laboratory Archive, University Archives, and all curated collections. Before Syracuse, she served at Iowa State University as the head of Special Collections and University Archives. Prior to that, she served as the head of Instruction and Outreach at the University of Virginia's Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library and Senior Assistant Archivist for the Division of Rare and Manuscript Collections at Cornell University. Jackson received a BA in English from the University of Toledo, an MA in English from Iowa State University, and a Master of Library and Information Science degree from the University of Pittsburgh. She is a widely recognized leader in the field by her active roles within the Society of American Archivists and the American Library Association's Rare Books and Manuscripts section. What drew you to librarianship and archival work? Well, this is a second career for me. So I my first career was as an English professor at a community college in Northwest Illinois. And when I decided to um, go into that, it was so, I just fell into it. I had just gotten my master's degree in English and I thought, oh, what do I do with this? <laughs> I'm not, um, I don't have the patience to be a K through 12 um, teacher. So maybe I'll teach at the community college level. And also I, I come from a family of a lot of teachers. So that was just very familiar. So I kind of fell into it like that. And I do, I am pretty good at teaching as well. But it was um, pretty clear early in my career uh, at the community college that I would not retire from there <laughs> because it was a mandatory five course, five um, course load per semester. And when you are grading that many papers, that's just a lot of, um, it's a lot of work. Um, and I always felt like I was never without um, my work. I would go home, there would be papers to grade. At work, you know, it was just like papers to grade, papers to grade. And although I grew a really strong appreciation for the work of the community college, the mission, I will always have like a really warm spot in uh, my heart for a community college. I knew that it was time for me to move on from there. So, you know, I did um, the, I approached trying to figure out what I wanted to do next in the complete opposite way that I um, kind of fell into community college. I was very calculated and I um, used to hang out in the library there all the time because I used to think, oh, the library 
these are so cool. And they were, they were just a great group of people. So I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe librarianship is the thing. So I did all kinds of informational interviews with them, reference librarians, and I branched out and, you know, did um, law librarians, all the various types of libraries and everything. I, I also went to um, the neighboring community college to their um, to their career center and got uh, an assessment, like a career assessment to see where I fell in that. And one of the careers that they picked was librarianship. So I thought, okay, I'm in the right direction. So one day I went to, um, I was back at my own uh, community college library and I was reading the stacks and I was reading the career stacks and it was a book that I saw, um, the subtitle was Alternative Careers for Librarians. So I said, oh, let me look at this. And I picked up the book and I saw a profile for a um, college archivist. I read through that and I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. Um, and so the college archivist that was featured was um, from Simmons College. And um, the person was Megan Sniffin Marinoff. And I thought, okay, maybe I can contact her and get an informational interview. And I did, and she obliged me, and the rest is kind of history. <laughs> Megan Go went on to um, become the Harvard University archivist. Um, she just retired, was it this year, I think? The year that I, or maybe it was last year. So it's like the year that I started um, here at um, Harvard was the year that she actually um, retired from that position. So it's interesting how things work out. And I also um, heard, I found out that she had a, um, she worked as an executive director of the Schlesinger Library. That's a position that I hold for um, maybe a, a year and a half to two years for a short period of time. So I thought, oh, it's such a small, the library slash archives world is pretty small, you know, and it's interesting how those things happen. So yeah, that's what brought me into, that's how I ended up here. Yeah. Full circle moment. Story. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> Full circle exactly. moment. Exactly. <laughs> Did you say, hey, do you remember me when you came to Harvard? You know, I hadn't, I haven't seen her since I've been oh, here, you know, COVID. Okay. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Just like, uh, everything is a little bit off from what it would be, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah. So, but I haven't, yeah, I haven't um, seen her or anything. Yes, everything is is off, and I guess we'll stay off, <laughs> and you know, like we're, we'll never get back to the way it used to be exactly. But yes. um, yeah. still, that's that's a great story to hear. As a BIPOC librarian and archivist, what do you view as critical to the success of the field? Ah, so many things, so many things. I have to think. I'm gonna narrow, try to narrow down my answer to this question. Um, because there are lots and lots of challenges, you know, preservation challenges, um, <laughs> salary challenges, but um, I will, I think I will stick to um, confronting systems of inequity. That's a huge challenge and to um, make sure that there are a variety of voices um, 
represented and heard in our field. And, and very specifically, let me not be that vague, the, um, the um, voices of Black folks, Indigenous folks, you know, uh, people of color that they that they are heard specifically, and that their stories are told, and that we not take that for granted, and that we find even if we don't have those stories, that we find ways to um, align with them, so those stories will not be will you know not be erased basically or never captured. You know, we always use, um, we often use uh, underrepresented, you know, when we describe uh, the absence of or um, the lack of voices of people of color and everything, but it's really um, historically excluded. I don't know who coined that or whatever, but there, it's, it, it's much more, um, it's too passive to say underrepresented, um, these voices have been excluded. And um, that that's not like left in the past. We are always like, um, it's a continuous process of um, making sure that people's voices are heard. And a lot of that um, is determined by the people we hire to making sure that we're hiring people who are culturally competent um, in uh, areas that, um, you know, cause librarianship and I would say too, that special collections libraries like, um, like 87% white. And so when you have those numbers, you usually have people who are from a culture who are outside of a, uh, um, people of colors, you know, culture and everything. And it that's a barrier to bringing in um, and telling the stories of those folks. And so that needs to be rectified, but it also needs to be rectified on the, um, on the highest levels of leadership too. It's not enough to have, you know, um, folks, a color, librarians of color, um, trying to do this work without buy-in from a leadership or understanding from uh, uh, like a real understanding from leadership. And I think that there needs to be critical mass for um, including um, black folks, indigenous people of color um, in those positions to move the needle because it's more of a sense of urgency um, and a more of an understanding when you have people who are insiders in the group and people who are willing to challenge the status quo. Because, you know, diversity is not enough. Because if you have diversity and then um, you're just following the same mold um, that was created um, by people who were not you or people who had never had you in mind, you're gonna get the same results. So we need to have some element of control of um, of the fate of things and to be unafraid to, um, you know, to break away from how things have always been done or to challenge systems of inequity or to um, also start looking for or, um, 
even above those administrative positions, because that's just not even enough to, if you're dealing with a structure that has a board that, um, you know, those kind to make sure that those boards are um, comprise people who are cultural insiders. And maybe the board doesn't need to be just um, the currency to be on a board doesn't need to just be money because that's usually ends up excluding a lot of um, people who are not white. Um, and I think those, we need to look at knowledge as a currency instead of just um, money as a currency when we um, uh, create these boards. It's like, it's never gonna get, things will um, not change until we're able to crack those positions and not just with people who will mimic a structure that's already there, you know, no matter what color they are, but who are willing to challenge it and shift it. Is that easy to do? No, that's why it's not being done, you know, um, on mass levels. It's very hard to do. And it's like, people just need to know that when you challenge structures, there will be pushback, you know, and so, you can't go into it and think there's not going to be pushback or, oh, my God, they pushed back on me. It's like, you know, they did because because uh, structures want to the machine wants to keep going the way it does. And no structure or no people or if you have power, you don't want to give it up. And this requires seeding power and um, you're going to get blowback. You just have to prepare yourself as much as possible or, you know, really run a personal risk assessment at what cost are you willing to, um, what are you willing to bear, you know, and um, when you challenge these systems of power and authority. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Yeah, what risk are you willing to take? And are you willing to shake it up and not do what others did before you that didn't look like you? And it's hard, like you said, and people get tired after a while, you know, going every day, all the time, push back, push back. And I find it fascinating because it's, I'm hearing stories of people interview for jobs and they ask these these DEI questions and they ask them like how would you approach this and you would give our answer and then when we get in the position when we get we actually implement what we told them we would do or go about it they're like surprised or shocked and it's like but that's what you you already oh, knew yeah. this was coming but oh, it's like yeah, you could do it out yeah it's like you could do that <laughs> there but you can't do that here you know mm -hmm. so it's just so interesting Ugh. I think you also have to think about like how far can you take this without actually losing your job <laughs> right so <laughs> mm -hmm. there's like a limit of course to like what you can do if you want to like stay financially solvent at the same time as trying to change things which is a terrible thing to have to make a choice between right yeah yeah. So true. So true. Well, I think that goes perfectly to our next question. How do you promote equitable practices through your work in the library? So part of what um, I think I've 
kind of grown into in my career. Um, I think as a whole, I'm a very practical and a very observant person. I've always been very observant. Um, in fact, <laughs> not that this should even be in here, but it's funny when I was little, when I was a really little girl, my mother said I used to stare all the time. And she would be like, what are you looking at? And she would like, uh, she would physically move my head sometimes. So I was just like checking out the environment hard, you know, when I was itty bitty and stuff. And although I don't stare anymore, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm very observant of my the environments that I go to. And I think as a black person, you have to be because you need to know what you're headed into. And um. And if it's safe or not, in, in, in all the ways you, you can interpret the word safe. So, um, and I think partly too, I'm a, a an introvert, you know, I get my energy, but kind of like, uh, you know, regrouping by myself and stuff, but I'm very observant when I'm around people. And so one of the things that I do, I it's like almost like a, a radar um, that I sense very quickly um, where is the real power line, and it's you know um, where uh, where are there inequities? Where you know people who don't have power are they feeling like uh, underappreciated, mistreated, or whatever? So it's like I'm all, I'm just primed to do 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 to suss that out because I've been in a variety of backgrounds and everything. And, and you see those things at work. But when I see those things, my first, um, kind of like my internal di um, dialogue is, how do I fix that? How do we fix these um, systems? And who are the people who are, who are able to help me fix it and everything? And that's where I start. And the observations turn into, you know, kind of like going to the folks, the helpers, so to speak, and talking to them about different things to suss them out, to see their reactions, the thing, things, um, to see if it can be changed. And um, so that's where I always start out. Sometimes I go directly to the person, you know, um, it, depending on how their power is distributed throughout the whole organization and everything. And I ask questions. I always ask a lot of questions. Um, so that's usually my approach in order to not, you know, people will feel threatened by that. If you if you need a lot of um, control and power and people are um, coming at you, I guess, in a way that's really direct, that could be, you know, perhaps a little bit um, too much of an approach. So I ask questions in order to find out the answers to those things and why, why is this so, you know? And um, and then I go from there, go up the hierarchy and you will know right away <laughs> if, uh, if the institution is agile enough that um, they think change is possible, or you'll find out if this problem has been ignored over, you know, years and years, and you try to figure out why is that, you'll think, you know, it's just a lot of finding out about the culture, the deep culture of the organization, and um, 
and how able are they to change and to try to get allies in your, um, cause you can't do this stuff by yourself. You will get totally worn out. And what was I saying? I saw something on Twitter that somebody said, you can't self-care yourself, self-care your way out of oppression. Got that right. You, can't, you know, it's like, it's not, <laughs> that's not enough. Um, you need allies and you need allies who are not just like, oh, I really support you, but who are able, who are willing to act on your behalf. And for a lot of things that I have had um, allies, but they are usually just uh, allies who say, we support you, but the action, that's the part that I do have some allies who are willing to support, you know, um, but the vast majority are, they don't know how to help to support or to, to enact things, particularly in um, environments that are very siloed and very tight, you know, that um, the outside can't really see what's going on or has never checked, you know, to see what's going on. But you just have to start by listening and learning and, um, you know, I'm an, an observing how these system work, these systems work and um, who's being negatively impacted by it. And um, I guess just showing concern, you know, that's the first and showing concern to the people who are being the most negatively impacted by it too to let them know that you see them, you hear them, and you want to help make this better for them. Yeah, I think um, to your point around allies, like I'm, and my thinking and, and kind of some of what I read also how other people approach it is that uh, allyship really is like the act, right? It is actually taking action and so if they're not doing that, are they really allies? And maybe you can be a supporter, but not an ally necessarily, right? Possibly. And, and I guess it's all in the way that you think about it. But um, um, we definitely need people who are willing to act and stand in the gap and actually do something. Because, um, yep, you know, absolutely. yeah. Um, and then also something else you were just talking about in terms of kind of how you kind of learn about the organization and you like kind of go up the ladder and kind of see where um, certain things are kind of getting the lay of the land. I, I feel like, you know, that just really, you just kind of like lay out the end kind of investive, investigative <laughs> aspect of learning about an institution, right? And and learning the, the culture of that place in order to really make the changes that need to be made or try attempt to anyway, but you really first have to identify like who's who, what's what, and you know, how are things being done? So I appreciate that also just you kind of laying that out for us and the thinking of how that how that goes. Thank you. So you recently gave a talk at SAA, um, Society of American Archivists, about archives leadership. Would you share with us some of your thoughts on being both an outsider and a disruptor in the field? Sure. So that is, I, I have felt like um, throughout most of my life, I've been an outsider because very early on, um, 
when I was, a, we moved from an all black um, suburb to a predominantly white uh, semi-rural place when I was 10 years old. And it was at that time that um, I felt like my time before then I moved very unconsciously in the world, just, you know, being a kid, you know, and just, you know, being my goofy kid self. And when I moved and there were very few people like me, I became very conscious of myself, my movement in that world. And um, even when I would re-enter the, the all black world that I came from, it was just, you know, how do I navigate this world too? Like this dual consciousness um, as Du Bois, you know, would say. Um, and so I've always, I've very early on had an outsider's lens. And I think that that can be a gift in, in a lot of ways because you can see things that other people can't see. Um, it's a lot of discomfort with that too, because it's like, where can you really um, fully be yourself, you know, and um, people understand you and everything, but it has helped me to, um, it helps you to identify um, when things aren't right at an institution. It helps you to identify um, inequities. Uh, um, and it um, helps you to identify uh, situations of fairness or equality or, you know, belonging and things like that, because you know what it's like not to belong. And it makes you um, fearless in that. I won't say fearless, not saying that I'm never afraid, because a lot of times, you know, I, I get afraid when I have to, um, when I feel compelled to have to do things and it, and it comes at a risk or whatever. But usually because I've been, because I kind of see um, myself through an outsider's lens and someone who disrupts um, systems, I, um, that discomfort uh, outweighs the um, discomfort of, oh, I'm afraid. It's like a, I have to act. It's hard. That's what I'm trying to learn. You know, do I learn how to um, be okay when stuff like this is happening? So, you know, just say I can't leave a job or whatever, or well, I don't buy that either. You can, you can leave any situation, but anyway, that's just, I, I think. Um, but the discomfort of it staying the way it is, is too high for me not to act, you know? So, that's what usually ends up. And was it, was I always like that? No, this is like a practice, you know, you practice being a disruptor. You don't, you know, start out being that way. You little, but well, some people do actually, some people have personalities um, where they, they do do that. And I, I wouldn't say that I have a personality that started like that. I was a very compliant child. Very, you tried, you know, you, um, was a very high achieving student. I wanted people to like me. Um, you know, it's just, you, you want um, things to go smoothly and become a perfectionist in order to do that. But um, I think that <laughs> just any kind of living will show you that the flaws in that as well. Um, 
but it's just a, a practice of when you um, see uh, unfair trend or inequity, and then you act on it, you start building up that muscle where you can't go back to, oh, I you can't unsee those things. And it just becomes easier. Is easier the word? It just becomes that you have to challenge those structures and not just um, let it go or wait for somebody else to do it because it ain't going to get done if you're waiting for somebody else to do it and, and always doing the risk assessment, always doing the risk assessment. I have to say, as you get uh, higher up in a... Um, you have more um, leverage or power than somebody who is lower in the organizational chart and everything, but it doesn't mean that um, you can't get fired or whatever, but hopefully you are in a um, better resourced way that even if you did, if you took the ultimate, um, you know, cut, you would still be able to um, bounce back and get another job or have enough to, you know, that's, that's part of what I'm working on now is, you know, being in a higher level position, you get a larger pay and it's allowed me to, um, this is things that people don't really talk about, <laughs> you know, to, in public, it has allowed me to pay off my, all this debt I had, consumer credit card debt. Let's be specific. It wasn't even student loan debt because I had paid that off a while ago. And it is allowing me to save in a way. So you'll have that. Uh, I, my goal is to get enough money where, you know, what do they call that? A bank account? Um, kiss my, you know, you, I, you can, you know, you can walk <laughs> if you want to. And you can have like, you know, few months to... Yeah, get yourself together and get another job or whatever you your plans on doing to get you know, a second uh, you know a side hustle or whatever the case may be. That's kind of my goal too because most places aren't ready for this kind of work. So it's like um, as I'm challenging structures, I'm also trying to prepare myself to be in the best place that I can. I don't mean place as in physical, but like financially and everything to um, make it um, so I'm less vulnerable. So yeah, it's like we, you really have to, when you have more flexibility like that, it, um, you can take more chances. That's why, you know, rich people do the things that they do. They take all kind of risks, you know, or with pe other people's lives. And I have no intention of doing things like that. But I think the more resources you have and everything, um, the less your vulnerability is and the more you're able to make more bold statements. And in my case, for hopefully for the betterment of an organization and people and everything. But yeah, it's hard. It is hard. And I appreciate you being real like that because I don't think, like you said, a lot of people don't talk about that. Like mm -hmm. making sure you have a nest egg, making, you know, you never know because today you might hit, you know, you know, upset somebody, somebody, something. And you got to get, you know, 
the backlash will come or the white lash <clears throat> will come <laughs> you know, at a risk. So yeah, that's, that's real and honest. And like you said, as long as it's for the betterment of people, that's, mm -hmm. I feel like that's the difference between a lot of people that have wealth is most of the times their decisions aren't for the betterment of the community as a whole, just for them as an individual. Mm -hmm. So that's real honest and real. Yeah. I also think too, um, um, oh, were you about to say something, Jamila? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, I think too, and I'm learning more about this, um, because I think that this is a way some people have, you know, have, um, functioned in their communities like this. And I think that if you go back far enough in all of our, uh, in black community and everything, um, a sense of mutual aid and everything, um, I would like to more wrap my head around that and to see how we can, because I, you know, I don't um, just normally go to that or whatever, but I see value in that. And I probably don't normally go to that because, you know, we're, all, we're Americans raised in a capitalist system. <laughs> you don't, you know, think about how can I, you know, uh, do mutual aid to help somebody out who, you know, a librarian, an archivist, or whoever that is in uh, having trouble like relocating or whatever, or, you know, they're in a tough spot or they're challenging a system and they've had, you know, I've been thinking about that, how as a community, we can be more helpful in that. Some people are already doing that work. So I don't, you know, I'm just learning about it, but particularly now we're in a very, very vulnerable time in this country. And I'm just thinking, how can we be helpful to each other to get through whatever it is we're about to have to get through? Because yeah. I feel like we're going to have to get through. We're going to get through some stuff. We really are. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of people are already dealing with that. People are losing their jobs because of books that they have selected. You know, people are, um, people are losing their jobs like because of book selections or book displays or yeah. you know being harassed and all this stuff and so it depending on how we maneuver is is going to get worse yeah and we do need to be together and you know come together as a collective and I like you said I do see that and I appreciate us coming around and corralling around people that are experiencing that type of harm and danger so yeah but yeah, yeah. What were you going to say, Jamila? <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. It got dark real quick, no. <laughs> but it's real. It's real. That's the sad part. It's real. No, this is all, yeah. I think I really like the idea of the mutual aid. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of also am thinking of it in terms of not just, you know, as professionals, but like, library support staff and paraprofessionals are also in a, a you know precarious place a lot of times and um kind of thinking of this where we are right now uh in Massachusetts and how expensive it is here and uh untenable you know to live here on some of these salaries and you know there's just so much um you know uncertainty and um 
some instability, right? Also. And so when you mentioned a side hustle, I'm like, I'm like here for the side hustle, <laughs> but not from like just the like this capitalistic standpoint, right? It's a way to have more security and to to have a, a kind of um soft bed to land on, right? In case things happened. And, and they, a lot of times they do happen. So um being able to support each other and help help each other in the best ways that we can just sounds like a, a great thing to be able to do and what it, however that manifests but um we definitely need it we do need it yeah i agree well i'm gonna bring some joy back in the conversation <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Uh, Please do. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, but it's real. It's so but, easy um, to end on a negative note around But here. it's so real. That's the part. Like, oh, but it's real. Uh, <laughs> you have a long and varied history of working in special collections and archives. What have been the most rewarding aspects of this work? Ah, I would say... One of the, when I was at the University of Virginia, I was the head of um, outreach and instruction for um, the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library. And I have to say that was a really creative part of my career. And just, um, I got a lot of joy uh, with working with some very cool colleagues and um, coming up with exhibition ideas were at the time that were pushing the envelope. Now, when you look at it, it's like, you know, um, <laughs> for now, you know, it maybe doesn't look like um, it was pushing the envelope, but for there in that time, definitely. Um, I was able to propose a, um, a course that was a for credit course, uh, for first year students to learn how to research and um, do outreach and special collections and stuff. They were able to create like mini exhibitions and we put on this whole, um, it was a, a entire event for, you know, all who wanted to come and see it. And it was just so much, it was a lot of hard work, but it was very, very, very fulfilling and everything. So just that period um, in, um, of my uh, career was very creative and I like being creative and everything. I also do have to say that, you know, even in my administrative positions, I love to advocate for people in um, the archives. And when I get wins from that, that's just like, yes. So when I was at Syracuse, being able to, um, advocate for facility for AV. Um, they have a, an amazing AV, uh, amazing collections that, um, it's AV collections basically that are very vulnerable because of the volatility of, you know, just what they're made out of and everything. And they have been experiencing year long advocacy for, um, to get a facility and we're essentially being told, yes, we support you, but we can't build this thing. And um, through my work there, I was able to get that um, completed, get that um, on the basically addressed and completed. So by the time I left, I think um, 
this year, they fully completed this facility. That is a wonderful feeling, a wonderful feeling. Yeah, nobody's going to say <laughs> that, oh, Katrina did this, you know, building or whatever. But to know that um, those materials are in a safe place and to know that, because um, they're important materials, to know that the, to let the donors or the donor's family know that we, um, that someone cares about those materials and is willing to invest. That's a really, I don't know, it's a great feeling. So, yeah, I like when the, you know, I'm trying to learn how to appreciate the process or the journey, but when you get stuff done and it's like, duh, we did that. That's a, um, that's a great feeling. It's a great feeling. All that hard work. Yes. It is yeah. a great feeling. Sense mm -hmm. of accomplishment. Yep. Check. <laughs> That's why yes. I like to do this. <laughs> Moving on to the next, right? <laughs> well, oh, you know what? I also oh, I just want no, to go say, ahead. Mm -hmm. I I also like to um, I also like um mentoring people or just um sharing with people uh, information and things to help them on their journey as an archivist or a special collections librarian or, you know, because you really need, you need helpers along the way to uh, help you get from one point to the other, to help you consider things or to um, shed light on stuff that, um, maybe you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have gotten any other way. So I do really like to help people, um, potential, you know, librarians and archivists or administrate li uh, library administrators. I really um, do, um, like to help folks on their way because it's not that many of us doing it. Yeah. Well, thank you for helping us along the way. Yes, because I think um, <laughs> kind of what you're speaking to is is mentorship, and and mm -hmm. that's something that is not always easy to come by. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, do a whole episode on that. I know. Some people like I suffered. You need to suffer too. I don't need oh. to mentor you. Like right? Oh, <laughs> Nobody helped me. I ain't helping. Right. You. I ain't helping you. Good riddance. <laughs> no, and then there's wonderful people like you. That's like I will help you. Come yeah. along with me. Yeah. Right. That's what we're looking for. That's more, what we're looking for. Like that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for all that care and uh, time. Because that's time out of your yes. Life. So, yeah. yeah. Sure that is. is so wild that point of view it really is yeah. it's um it's violence I, it, is. Know, it really is yeah 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 low key high key i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> it is violent well thank you for sharing with us is there anything that we didn't ask that you would like to add I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me, um, for letting me be a part of your podcast. I very much appreciate it. I don't take for granted that, you know, that I can be in whatever space, but um, I'm always happy to, 
you know, to be in spaces like this to help and to move, help to move us forward any way that I can. So thank you. Thank you. Well, yes, okay. we appreciate you being here and, and for, you know, all the people who we invite who actually are able to, you know, come and see us and take the time out to, to speak on things like this. And so we definitely don't um, take for granted the time that you spend with us as well. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you learned more about Petrina Jackson. We'd like to share a quote with you before we sign off. I love myself, the quietest, simplest, most powerful revolution ever. Naira Wahid. Remember to keep walking in your lip voices. And please follow us on all of our social media pages.